0: Almost exactly six months ago, China Talk hosted Karis Templeman to discuss the 2024 Taiwan elections, and today we're super lucky to have him back to discuss the 2024 Taiwan elections. Karis is a research fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University and is also the manager of the project on Taiwan in the Indo-Pacific region. We'll discuss what the Taiwan voters chose on January 13th, what different international actors have to say about it, and what Taiwan's future may look like for the next four years. Karis, welcome back. Thanks for having me back. It's great to see you, Nick. So let's talk presidential first. The results came in pretty quick. On the night of the 13th, Lai Qingda of the Democratic Progressive Party, or DPP, he won the election handily with 40% of the vote. Uh, second place was the KMT. Candidate Hou yi took about 33% of the vote. And third party candidate, wen Wanzhou of the Taiwan People's Party, took 26% of the vote. This is Somewhat unprecedented, Taiwan's had eight democratic elections since 1996. This is the first time that a single political party has won three elections in a row in the executive. Just in general, um, leading up to the election, anything on election day, was there anything noteworthy or surprising or things we should know about?
1: Yeah, so to me, the big surprise was that there were no surprises. Uh, The polls from six months ago when we chatted actually were a pretty good forecasts of what the voters actually did on election day so uh lai chingde led in the polls all year and i kept expecting to see some movement and maybe some coalescing behind a single candidate in the opposition and that never actually happened and we ended up with a real genuine three-way race right up until election day so that was a surprise i think also having been on the ground there, I was struck by how subdued this election campaign felt in contrast to previous elections. Uh, So I've been in Taiwan for four presidential elections now in 2008, 2016, 2020, and now 2024. And this one by far felt the most, maybe not laid back, but certainly subdued. And it felt like Taiwan voters weren't that thrilled about any of the candidates. And uh, did not kind of view this in the same way that they had viewed past presidential elections as a sort of existential choice or a referendum on the incumbent government or any of that. So that, that was pretty interesting to experience. And then the contrast with the way that the foreign media framed this election was really stark. So almost every, I mean, there's something like 500 reporters on the ground from abroad for this election and their editors back home all wanted to frame this as Taiwan voters choose, you know, this candidate who's going to stick it to China or, you know, this is a loss for China or uh, kind of throw caution to the wind and reelect the DPP for a third term. And when you talk to voters on the ground, they that's not really how they were thinking about this election at all. It was more, you know, disappointment or disillusionment with the DPP, um, but also, not a whole lot of enthusiasm for the KMT's candidate, uh, and not a whole lot of confidence that Koenja of the Taiwan People's Party as the third candidate would be a better option than the other two. And so, overall, it just it, it, the, the delta, the, the change or the difference between uh, the foreign media kind of framing of this and the kind of subdued electoral environment domestically was really stark. Yeah.
0: New York Times said in a setback for Beijing, uh, Wall Street Journal, Taiwan voters defy Beijing in electing new president. CNN voters dismiss China warnings, et cetera, et cetera. So obviously, it's not a huge shock that Lai Qingdao won. But why why do you think ultimately the KMT didn't prevail this time around, given that parties never lasted more than two terms in a row, and there was widespread dissatisfaction with eight years of DPP governance on many domestic areas? Was it simply that the vote was split?
1: Um, I, I think it was that the vote was split. Uh, there were clearly warning signs for the DPP going into this election cycle. For one, we know from our own country that it's sneaky hard for a ruling party to win three presidential terms in a row. Uh, when you polled voters over the last year, the majority suggested they wanted a change in ruling party. You know, Those numbers were um, anywhere to, from 50 to 60, sometimes 70% of respondents said they wanted to see a change in ruling party. And then the economy, uh, while it wasn't doing terribly, it also hit a it hit a kind of a slowdown uh, over the last year. And Taiwan, like many places around the world, was suffering from uh, high inflation, especially compared to, to past uh, decades. And so there's a lot of reasons why voters might have been willing to uh, vote against the DPP, but they needed to coordinate on the opposition candidate who had the best chance of winning in order to ensure that there was a a change in ruling party. And so uh, when we chatted six months ago, I made some of these points. But one of the things I I didn't realize or that I I think I got wrong was that the voters who wanted a change in government cared, I thought, more about that change in government and about having somebody else in than who that other person was. Uh, And in the end, a lot of people who supported Koenja voted for him, I think, knowing full well that he wasn't going to win, uh, but they couldn't bring themselves to vote for Ho or vice versa. You know, a lot of people who voted for Ho were going to, you know, cast what they knew was a losing vote for Ho, um, with the idea that they they couldn't stand Koenja, um, and so the. There were a lot of voters who were either indifferent between the two the two other candidates that they didn't vote for, and so didn't care about having whether whether Lai or Ho actually won, and they wanted to vote for Kuh as a kind of way to promote a third party going forward. Uh, and then I think there were a fair number of voters who um, just didn't, kind of see this in stark existential terms either and you know didn't didn't see this as a really high stakes election either way. And so that meant that there wasn't the kind of strategic voting that you might expect in this sort of environment where voters abandon one of the opposition candidates to coordinate on the other. So I was I was a little surprised by that in the end as well.
0: Yeah, and it's so interesting this election, just like the election in 2000, No single candidate took a majority of votes. And of course, the the PRC foreign ministry, going on the point that 60% of voters didn't choose Lai Chingda, said it's obvious that the DPP can't represent the mainstream public opinion on the island because, look, 60% don't want him and now he's president. My point to that was, well, the Taiwanese can change the way they run their democratic systems, and they've done that before. In 2005, they amended the constitution such that 34 people in the legislature were not elected through this first-past-the-post system. Also, I read an article today, at least two KMT legislators are suggesting that Taiwan introduce absentee voting. Do you think uh, the people are going to be overall really dissatisfied with a minority president? And do you think that's going to lead to any changes in how Taiwan does its voting scheme? Or is this not that big of a deal?
1: Yeah, so I think... There's a danger that Lai Chingda starts out fairly unpopular. Uh, he certainly didn't win a mandate to uh, to introduce sweeping changes. Um, you know, from day one, he is going to struggle with um, the the challenge of governing without a majority of his own party in the legislature, uh, and that may cause some dissatisfaction. Yeah, I think. He's got a much tougher political environment than Tsai Ing-wen did for both of her two terms uh, or that Mai ying frankly, did uh, before Lai and Tsai. Um, so that's a, a potential problem. I think on the, the absentee balloting question, there are good reasons to be concerned about introducing absentee ballots in Taiwan. Um uh, let me first point out the fact that turnout in this election actually wasn't that low. Um, despite the fact that all Taiwanese have to go back to the where the, where the original household registration is to vote, um, turnout was almost 72% in this election. Uh, and that's down a couple points from uh, 2020, but not that much, actually. And so uh, despite having what's a pretty uh, pretty high hurdle to actually go vote, Taiwanese do still turn out in large numbers and do make the effort to go back to their hometowns to cast ballots. So as an argument for increased turnout, I actually don't think absentee balloting has a whole lot. It's not a really convincing argument. And there are a couple big downsides. Uh, One is that Taiwan has long had a problem with vote buying, uh, and they've introduced lots of measures to try to make it harder to buy votes effectively. Uh, One of them is you can't carry a cell phone into your polling place, so they're trying to avoid people taking a picture of the vote that they've just stamped in their polling place to make it harder to confirm that the vote you bought, they actually uh, delivered on their end of the deal. Uh, If you introduced absentee balloting, well, those goes to your... your your home and you could fill that out of your kitchen table. And it's it's not that much of a leap to imagine uh, local vote brokers going around and giving you money and then watching you fill it out at your kitchen table and ensuring that you voted the way they paid you to. And so uh, that would be, I think, a step in the wrong direction, actually, in this, this long-term fight against vote buying. And then, of course, there's the other huge concern, which is there's uh, lots of Taiwanese who live overseas, including you know, several hundred thousand who live in the People's Republic of China. Uh, if you're sending them all ballots, I don't have any confidence the CCP would not try to interfere in uh, the casting of those ballots. And I, I'm pretty confident that local party officials would pressure Taiwanese living on the mainland to fill out their ballots in a certain way and perhaps do it with a ccp member present to confirm that they had voted the way they said they would and in a sense that's no longer a completely free and fair election if you've got thousands hundreds of thousands of taiwanese abroad facing some some pressure to vote a certain way um let's be honest it could be very coercive it could also potentially undermine the legitimacy of an election if you've got hundreds of thousands of ballots coming across the strait uh, and they're counted last and you could imagine several races swinging from the uh, China skeptical candidate to the the more China friendly candidate, you know, that that could really undermine the legitimacy of the winners in that case. Uh, And so I think absentee balloting, if it is introduced in Taiwan, has to be done carefully with a lot of uh, advanced planning and with some real limitations on how far in advance ballots can be cast, where they can be cast, uh, the kind of uh, checks uh, needed to confirm that the person who got the ballot actually was the one who cast the vote and so forth. Um, I do think if you wanted to adapt the Taiwan system to allow early voting or some kind of limited voting uh, at at your home where people come to you and you cast a ballot, I think those Those types of amendments or additions to the voting process uh, would be uh, more feasible in the Taiwan context and would uh, address some of the concerns about a disproportionate burden on people who don't live in the same place that their household
0: registration
1: requires them to vote in.
0: Well, let's let's talk about People's Republic of China, because that was another potential surprise here. What you said, the surprise is that basically nothing happened, and China's response to this election was pretty muted. To the mainstream media's point, Lai Qingda was China's least favorite candidate. They made that pretty clear, issued formal statements saying they sincerely hope Taiwan compatriots recognize the extreme danger of confrontation and conflict caused by Lai Qingda and his party. So no question they were disappointed there. But there was not a substantial uptick in military activity after the election at all. I mean, there's always activity in the strait, but it wasn't significantly more than, for example when Nancy Pelosi visited the island in August 2022. In bad months, there can be literally hundreds of aircraft and naval sorties. So what do you think explains that? Also, CSIS recently released a survey of several dozen U.S. and Taiwan experts, of which you were one of them, about implications on the Taiwan election for cross-strait peace. And interestingly, there was almost no consensus as to one the manner in which Beijing would respond, whether that would be military or blockade or other efforts of non-military coercion, and also no consensus as to when these efforts would come, if it would come right after the election, if it would come after his inauguration on May 20th, if they'd give him some sort of grace period to see if he's not as bad as they hope he is. So what do you thought, Sarah? Why was China's response so muted this time? And how and when do you think they will respond?
1: Yeah. So I think the the first, probably the simplest answer is that they saw it coming. They knew that Lai was probably going to win. Yeah. I mean, in the constellation of possible outcomes here, uh, at one extreme, Lai wins big and the DPP holds on to their majority or even increases it in the legislature. That, from their perspective, would be the worst possible outcome. Uh, At the other extreme, the KMT wins the presidency. And wins a majority in the legislature. That would be, from their perspective, probably the most um, favorable outcome. Um, And then a bunch of options in the middle. And this was one of the options in the middle. Lie won, but 40% of the vote is not 58%. um, And, you know, they did lose their majority in the legislature. Uh, It will now be controlled by the KMT and TPP together. And so there are lots of ways to spin this as a trend in the right direction. You know, Lai is not performing as well as Tsai. The DPP's caucus is not as large as it was under Tsai. Taiwan voters are tiring of the DPP. And so that suggests there's not a need to, you know, make a really hard stand against Lai initially, at least. And then... The, the other thing here is Lai, and this may be more overshadowed or less obvious, but Lai in his uh, victory speech on election night was actually, I thought, pretty moderate and pretty vague about what he said about cross-strait relations. And so he deliberately avoided repeating some of the phrases that Tsai Ing-wen has used that Beijing really doesn't like. And Basically, left himself some room to maneuver in a way that might be more to Beijing's liking, rhetorically at least, over the next few months. And so, that may have been enough, at least over the the near term, to uh, allow Beijing to to kind of wait and see how things evolve. The last reason here, I think, is that the uh, the U.S. factor is pretty important here too, and the U.S. Uh, was the Biden administration was very careful to try to signal that they did not have a favorite in this race to push back against Beijing's assumptions that the U.S. secretly wanted the DPP to win. You know, The AIT chairwoman, Laura Rosenberger, went to Taiwan several times and visited all three of the presidential candidates and spent, you know, was very careful to spend equal amounts of public time with each of them, do similar kinds of activities, and to signal that she liked all three of them. And Maybe this is an over optimistic reading, but i I do think the Biden administration's careful diplomatic work to try to signal that the United States did not have a an interest in one candidate winning over the others uh, may have helped uh, reassure the PRC side as well. Um, and you know, nothing that the us. has said or done uh, in the days surrounding this election has been out of line with past precedent as well. And so, you know, the Biden administration basically has not given Beijing an excuse to throw a temper tantrum and to, you know, have a big military exercise or, or do something else that would be drastically uh, would drastically escalate the conflict across the straits. I should note they have still done a couple small things. One is, um, Nauru, one of Taiwan's few remaining formal diplomatic allies, announced just I think two days after the election they were switching diplomatic recognition to the prc from the roc and that that was probably a long time in the works it was something that probably wouldn't have happened if a kmt candidate had won the presidency um and it's intended to be i think a shot across Lai's bow to indicate that the prc could do this uh, do a lot more of this um, in the diplomatic space and maybe economically and militarily as well if Lai doesn't uh watch what he says and does so it's early days yet and things could still escalate uh, rapidly if if Beijing feels like it's in their interest to do that. But so far, at least, um, I think this is, we're, we're close to a best case scenario, in my view, for what uh, was going to follow a, a lie victory in the days after the election.
0: Yeah, that was my thought, too. I think like an optimistic reading here is that uh, Xi Jinping is surrounded by a cohort of advisors who actually told him the truth about what's going to happen on this election. So he wasn't shocked by the outcome. And I think in as much as that's true, that's really great news for everyone. Yeah, echo chambers are dangerous. So yeah, happy about that. I was curious about Nauru as well. If you only have 13 diplomatic allies and you go down to 12, that does feel like a lot. And as you said, it must have been in the works for a long time. Um, How much do you think the Taiwanese populace cares about these kind of issues? Are they just happy that they don't have to spend several million dollars to try to keep a small island nation in the loop? Or are they really offended by this? Or what do Taiwanese voters think about that?
1: You know, that's a great question. I don't know if we have really good data on the population as a whole. So in the absence of good systematic data, I'll just use some anecdotes. You know, when I've talked to people on the street about this, I'm I'm often surprised at how emotional they get and and how much this does feel like a betrayal uh, to to see a a former friend or diplomatic ally of Taiwan abandon it. And so even though it may not have a whole lot of practical impact on Taiwan's uh, ability to trade with the rest of the world, to travel in the rest of the world, to uh, visit, for instance, the U.S. without applying for a visa now, it does still have a significant emotional and psychological impact when you flip an ally like that. And I think Beijing recognizes that and is uh, you know uses it strategically to try to undercut support for the DPP and to try to
0: bolster the the more China friendly groups in Taiwan's politics. Luckily Taiwan still has some more populous diplomatic allies like Guatemala has 17 million people um, Haiti has, 11 million something people. So they're, they're still doing all right. Something I wrote on China Talk just right after the election was, if the DPP can pull off 12 or even 16 years of uneventful status quo preserving governance, the DPP may well prove its platform's hypothesis that a distinct Taiwanese identity, a foreign policy focused on ties to democratic allies, and minimal contact with the mainland demonstrably works just as well or better than the KMT's old approach. So I'm trying to imagine if I'm, let's say I'm a a well-informed but strong supporter of the Chinese Communist Party. I live in mainland China, and I think for whatever reason, but in good faith, that that China's justified in its territorial claims over Taiwan. I, I could imagine myself at this point saying something like, this is kind of a scary outcome. The Taiwanese populace is going to start feeling way too cozy, identifying as Taiwanese, and the cozier they get, the harder our job is to avoid coercive tactics. To be fair, Lai Qingdao, he's not going to do anything stupid. Like you said, he's been very moderate. He's not going to amend the constitution to support independence. But in another sense, is the DPP's platform dangerous per se at this point? Not trying to be a shill for anyone here, but just given how important Taiwan is to the world, to democracy, to global prosperity, I think the U.S. and its allies need a really solid response to this line of reasoning because I think it's going to be a popular sentiment for a lot of people.
1: Yeah. So I think Lai, if he is able to win re-election in four years, and and I should note the kind of conventional wisdom in Taiwan is that he will struggle to do that. um, And that, uh, you know, he may have gotten lucky with a split opposition this time around, but um, without having a favorable majority in the legislature and continued hostility from China and, um, you know, a more uncertain outlook in the U.S. over the next four years in terms of uh, who will be the president and what kind of support they might offer for, for Taiwan. The, the assumption is that Lai probably won't win re-election, or at least that he should be uh, considered an underdog uh, to win re-election. And so if he beats those expectations and then does pull off uh, what some people would call an upset right now, then it might actually force Beijing to reassess fundamentally their strategy for Bringing Taiwan into the PRC's fold. And that strategy has been twofold. On the one hand, they've engaged in a lot of coercive activities. This is the stuff that gets the headlines. So, flipping diplomatic allies, uh, imposing kind of arbitrary bans on exports to the mainland. Um, You know, pineapples are kind of the signature example of this. Um, Everybody can wrap their heads around what a pineapple is. Um, it's a kind of high-profile product that has a lot of uh, symbolic or emotional appeal. But it's actually not that important to either economy. And uh, the Beijing doesn't really hurt the Chinese market by not allowing Taiwan pineapples in. Um, and so it's, it's kind of the ideal uh, good to, to play politics with and, and to engage in sort of arbitrary changing of the rules of uh, or the terms of imports. Um, so I I suspect Beijing will continue to do that. And then in the the military realm, they've engaged in a, a you know a much higher level of military activity around Taiwan, but it's intended to be to kind of have a psychological impact on Taiwan. A lot of these activities are not actually training missions for a full-scale invasion or blockade or the kind of activity that they would have to do to, Impose a military solution on, in their terms, the Taiwan problem. So that strategy is is likely to go forward on the the kind of hard track uh, where they're engaging in this coercive activity. But on there's a second part to this, which is a soft track, which is engagement with um, uh, people-to-people ties. Um, And much deeper economic integration, including things that the PRC really needs that are made in Taiwan, like um, advanced semiconductor chips. Uh, They're not going to ban those kinds of things over the next four years because that would actually impose a real cost on the PRC to do that. Uh, And so they're likely to continue with some of the softer stuff, too. They've uh, rolled out a bunch of uh, kind of legal changes. that are intended to benefit Taiwanese living on the mainland and give them better legal protections, access to some of the the state-provided welfare benefits or housing and so forth as well. Um, And they're likely to continue with that playbook as well. So on the one hand, coercing uh, the Taiwan government, which is held by the DPP, but at the same time engaging with anybody who is not pro-DPP or pro-independence and trying to woo them uh, with carrots and you know benefits, uh, so to bring this full circle, if Li to does win re-election, if say he were to to bounce back and win well over fifty percent, the DPP comes back in the legislature, it's really hard to spin that as uh, a resounding policy success uh, for Beijing, and that might actually cause them to fundamentally reassess what they're doing, um, and that kind of where they might end up at, at the end of a reassessment like that. They might decide that they really don't have any plausible path to peaceful reunification anymore, and they need to make the military option kind of front and center in their, their future strategy. Or they might decide that the military piece, the coercive pieces of the strategy at least, are undercutting the softer parts of the strategy, and they need to recalibrate at least. And um, so... Yeah, to stay tuned. Uh, four years is uh, a long time in this trilateral relationship, but we could be in a very different place in four years. Uh, that either leads to you know a, a significant improvement in cross-strait relations or a significant deterioration. But if I could reassure the audience, I would say at least over the next couple of years, I don't expect to see dramatic shifts in current trends
0: in the trilateral relationship. And also. In the CSIS survey, there was a single respondent out of almost 100 who thought there would be an amphibious invasion by the end of 2024. So everyone else categorically said, nope, not going to happen. So reassuring, we're not going to have anything crazy. I should
1: clarify that single respondent was not me. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Let's go. Let's talk about the legislature. I've mentioned it a few times already, but this was a very interesting outcome and I think uh, more or less unprecedented. Post-election, The DPP holds 51 seats, the KMT holds 52, and the TPP, Taiwan People's Party, uh, holds 8. And the majority threshold is 57 seats. So no party has a majority, and the TPP is actually in a great spot now. If I understand it correctly, they're kind of the gatekeepers, because if the DPP or the KMT wants a bill to go through, they need the Taiwan People's Party sign-on. In in a podcast last year, I spoke uh, not very highly of Koontz. I thought I was really unimpressed with his polling data shenanigans. Uh, maybe I shouldn't have expected much from a politician because that's what they do. But um, I thought it was it was really naive to not join the KMT's ticket in some capacity to make sure the DPP wasn't in the executive. But now I'm kind of wondering if that was intentional because his force of personality. Caused the TPP's representation in the legislature to almost triple, and now they have a lot of power in the legislature. Can you speak to that at all?
1: I I think Coenja overperformed relative, certainly to my expectations going into this election. He held on to a lot of the support that polls were showing he had in the during the campaign, and I had expected a lot of those voters at the last minute to kind of drift away and drift back to their respective political camps um so yeah his his performance as a third party candidate running against the two traditional parties was was impressive frankly um and we're going to be i think spending a lot of time over the next couple years unpacking and trying to analyze who the typical co-voter was and uh, whether they're likely to stick with Kuh and the TPP going forward, or whether this was kind of a faddish thing where they will drift away again over the next few years. Um, and then in the legislature, having Kuh on the presidential ticket, I think, did help the TPP's uh, party list vote. And more important than the increase in seats was that they're now holding the balance of power, and both the DPP and KMT are. Uh, incentivized to woo them to go to try to offer some benefits to get them on side and to to have them as a coalition partner. So they're sitting pretty right now. The hidden challenge that they face is that not everybody in the TPP may be pulling in the same direction over the next four years. Um, Ko Wenja has already stated that he wants to run for president again in 2028. So his incentive is to see the TPP do whatever they can to bolster his standing as the party leader and to position himself for that run. He is not actually a member of the legislative caucus, though, although he's the party chair. And so the caucus could plausibly act fairly independently of Kuh. And if there is disagreement uh, between members of the caucus and Kuh, they could you know, thumb their noses at Kuh and, and decide they want to vote or support a different set of policies uh, than orders them to. And so on top of that, there's a couple members in that caucus who used to be part of other political parties are, I I would argue, pretty opportunistically joined the TPP um, and are now gunning to advance their own political careers. So to the extent because interests align with the interests of people in the TPP Legislative Caucus, then I think you'll see them present at least a facade of unity. But uh, there may be some critical moments where um, either on a policy issue or a question of whether to accept an offer of an office, say in a lie cabinet or supporting you know, one member of the caucus for legislative speaker or deputy speaker, that sort of thing. Members of the TPP's legislative caucus may have may want to do something different than what Coenja wants to do. Uh, and so long story short, that party is not institutionalized enough and hasn't worked out how it's going to deal with these potential conflicts in a way that I think it will be robust to the challenges that it faces going forward. And so we're more likely than not to see that party face a crisis over the next couple of years, despite their
0: seeming ideal positioning right now. Right. I was going to ask when we spoke six months ago, no one really knew what the Tao and People's Party platform was. It was right. a mystery. Now we've been through an election cycle, and I still think we still don't know. Yeah, nobody <laughs> knows. Um, so yeah, we'll just have to see to see if they end up thumbing their nose at Ko, like you said, or if some crisis presents itself, or or if they really find their groove as gatekeeper of legislation.
1: Yeah, yeah and I, uh, you know, Ko Wenja himself. Clearly, did not have a, a sort of coherent ideology that he was presenting, other than the idea that he was a pragmatist and he was scientific and he would, you know, just kind of solve problems objectively as they as they come. There are other people in that caucus, particularly Huang Chang, who used to be part of the New Power Party, uh, who do have strong opinions on things like judicial reform or uh, legislative oversight of the executive branch, and are. You know they're not wallflowers. They're pretty strong personalities uh, in their own right. You know I've heard speculation that Huang Guochang wants to either hold a you know an office, maybe in the Lai cabinet. He might uh, be interested in the Ministry of Justice, or uh, he might be interested in running for a local mayor position. Um, and either of those aspirations could bring him into direct conflict with Ku Huang Shanshan, Shan, who's at the top of the party list. And as the party caucus leader at the moment is also a strong personality, uh, she may have similar aspirations. And so, if if Lie, for instance, were to offer one or both of them positions in his cabinet, Kuh might tell them no. But they might decide that that you know they they want the glory of having that office, or or they they see this as an opportunity they can't pass up. And so there 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 are a lot of ways that this could go sideways for the TPP. Uh, in 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 large part because. There's no kind of shared core values that brought them together in the first place, other than uh, kind of hunger to be more politically relevant and to have that, that kind of crucial swing vote
0: in the legislature. You now, speaking of personalities, we've got a fun speaker election coming up. But what's the right translation of speaker? It's like Yuan I've seen some places say president of the legislature, other places say speaker. What's the official way to say it? Yeah, if we think
1: in a comparative context, the, the more idiomatically correct translation would be speaker. It's the role that's roughly equivalent to the speaker of the U.S. House. But the formal, uh, so Li Fa Yuan Zhang um, would be the, the leader of the Li Fa Yuan, the Legislative Yuan. Uh, and I've seen it translated as president of the Legislative Yuan
0: sometimes too. Yeah, in any case, the uh, Yuan Zhang elections coming up. We have strong personality, old-time friend Han Guo Yu of the KMT. He won Kaohsiung mayorship in 2018. First time there had been a KMT mayor of that city since 1998. And then he ran for president in 2020, but lost to Tsai Ing-wen on a landslide. So he's the KMT's nominee for speaker of the legislature. And then on the other side, we have Si-quin of the DPP, who's your classic founding member of the DPP. That, that's the kind of race we have going there. Anything we should know or expect to come out of the race for speaker?
1: Yeah. So um, I think the TPP actually has a lot of bargaining power in this. The DPP would do well to uh, propose, and I I heard some rumors that they had done this privately, reached out to the TPP and proposed supporting a TPP member for the speaker uh, in order to beat the KMT's nominee. But then there was a report this morning that Ko Wenja had negotiated directly with the KMT and agreed to support their nominee Han Guoyu for speaker, um, and potentially their nominee for deputy speaker. Um, so I we'll see if that report is accurate or not. But I think if they did that, that would signal that the the TPP is looking to ally with the KMT pretty consistently in the upcoming term, and they may act more like a a unified bloc in opposition to the DPP, uh, rather than kind of picking their battles and and swinging between the two other major parties on an uh, issue-by-issue basis. So I don't know. We'll see. Uh, The legislature gets seated on uh, February 1st, and the first order of business is actually electing a speaker. Uh, So we'll know on February 1st or at the latest, 2nd what ultimately the TPP decides to do. But they really do hold the, the critical cards here at the moment.
0: Yeah. To that end, let's say Yoshi Kuen of the DPP wins the speakership. Is that going to make Lai Qingda's job as president significantly easier? Or is it still going to be quite difficult to legislate when you don't have a majority?
1: Yeah. So an excellent question. I, I. Long story short, uh, it's not going to make a huge difference. The speaker of the legislature has some powers, uh, formal institutional powers, but the previous speaker, Wang Jinping, of the KMT was really quite a powerful speaker, in large part because of his, his personal networks and informal connections to the rest of his caucus. And the ability of any of the potential speaker candidates to, to kind of achieve what Wang Jinping achieved, I think, is is remote. I think that possibility is unlikely and the Speaker's formal institutional powers, you know, the, he can send things to the cross-party negotiation committee and pull them out for a floor vote. But if he doesn't have the votes and he hasn't negotiated something beforehand, uh, then he's not in a position to kind of unilaterally force stuff through. Um, and so in one sense, yeah, it's helpful to have an ally rather than an opponent in that role. But uh, in the larger strategic picture, um, lie would still, I think, have a a
0: challenging relationship with the legislative
1: Yuan in his first term.
0: So legislature is going to be put in place February 1st, but I think won't be inaugurated until May 20th. Huge time lag. And in the United States, we fix this time lag with constitutional amendment, but Taiwan has quite a long time lag. Obviously there will be no change in political party in the executive. So it's, it won't be this long extended lame duck period. But is there anything noteworthy about this time lag? Yeah,
1: a couple noteworthy things. One is that the legislature could be a real pain in the ass to Tsai Ing-wen when she's still in office. Um, And I mean, if it's controlled by the opposition, it will be a very different dynamic in her last couple months in office. And they could create a lot of problems for Lai Ching before he even takes power. The other uh, thing to note here is that if Beijing does decide that they want to respond in a a dramatic way to Lai's election or to something he says or to something the U.S. does that they interpret as too supportive of Lai or uh, too provocative or a violation of the one China policy of the United States, it will be Tsai Ing-wen actually managing the the Taiwan response to that, uh, that escalation rather than Lai himself. And that's important in part because Tsai and Lai have had a sometimes... Uh, difficult working relationship in the past. They come from different wings of the party. Uh, They have very different personalities. Um, They're just uh, pretty different people. And Lai has been mostly on the outside looking in, uh, in terms of security policy during the Tsai administration's second term. And so uh, the, the coordination between Lai and Tsai could get a little challenging if there's something. You know, some kind of emergency or, or a, a significant issue that Tsai has to deal with and then pass off to Lai, and it's, I wouldn't take it as a given that simply because they're
0: both part of the same political party that that handoff will will happen seamlessly. As you mentioned before, you were visiting Taiwan for this most recent election. Anything you saw which people in America or elsewhere can learn?
1: Yeah, I mean, Taiwan is always, you know, I've been there for several elections now, and it's always an inspiration how uh, how smoothly Election Day runs. You know, there are often a lot of wild accusations thrown at the various candidates. Um, there's, it can be a hyper-partisan media environment. Uh, there can be really passionate rallies. Uh, but on Election Day, all of that stops uh, in fact, it's mandated to stop by the electoral law and voters quietly, you know, go to their polling place. They're typically in and out in five minutes. And then the counting takes place at the same polling station that voters voted in earlier that day. Uh, and it's done in full sight of anybody who wants to watch. And so it's, it's a process that really increases the legitimacy and the transparency of the election results. Uh, and it's also very quick and efficient. Uh, so we knew the results in this election. We knew who won by, say, 6 p.m. We knew it was clear that Lai was going to be on top. Uh, and by 8 p.m., we had a good idea of what the legislature would look like. And in fact, on a personal note, I was actually on an a English-language TV show from 8 to 9, and we had originally planned out that whole hour to have a lot of kind of in-depth analysis and discussion of the election outcomes. And we kept getting bumped because each of the candidates came out and gave their victory or concession speech. And so three separate times during that hour, they're like, oh, we got to cut away. And so I, I only got about three minutes of FaceTime on that that show because, uh, you know, Lai Chingda has to speak instead. And you, of course, you got to go to him. So Taiwanese in this election were almost too efficient at counting the votes. They got through too quickly. And everybody knew the result, you know, by 8 p.m. when the polls had closed at four. And, and so... In some sense, there's there's something really admirable about uh, that sort of low-tech, fast, fair, and efficient counting process, and and one that really does help kind of bolster the legitimacy of Taiwan's uh,
0: democracy. The concession speeches, they came really quickly and gracefully and easily. And one of my favorite Facebook posts I've seen in a long time from Ke Wunja, I imagine a lot of his voters were Gen Zers who have the critical thinking skills of a lizard. So they were Upset with the outcome here. And Kawancha posted on Facebook. 可以到戶外走走, what is that? If you're upset with the okay. result, you can go for a walk outside until you calm down. Something like that. Just it sounds a lot different from if you don't fight like hell, you're not gonna have a country anymore. Like different concession speech there.
1: Right. Yeah, and it's it's nice to uh, being a place where that uh, it, it it goes without remark almost in in Taiwan, it's like people expect that the candidates come out and give their concession speeches, and and people call it a day, and there's no big controversy about uh, the way the votes were counted, or you know there there are some, some radicals who like to argue sometimes about uh, particular procedures or polling stations, as there are all over the world, but. Um, the vast majority of Taiwanese recognize the result as uh, the, the will of the Taiwan voters. And and that, more than who won, I think is the really, uh, the, the beautiful gift that Taiwan democracy is, you know, that, that people can
0: accept uh, a peaceful transfer of power. Great note to end on. Karis, thanks so much for coming back on China Talk. Thanks for having me. It's great China to chat, as
2: always. Is, it's only yeah, 다시 Yeah What more the church